Another former TYT on-air personality is running for office. No, it's not me. No, it's not Nina Turner. No, it's not Michael Shore. It's Nomi Konst, and she's joining us right now. <laughs> Nomi, how are you? Good, Jank. How are you? Uh, wonderful. All right. So this one is for a Senate uh, district race in New York, uh, the 59th district. So uh, tell us why you decided to run for this. So I live in the 59th district. Um, I live in Astoria, and Astoria is the heart of the 59th district. It's an interesting district that uh, crosses uh, Astoria, Long Island City, uh, Greenpoint, a little sliver of northern Williamsburg, and a part of Manhattan that includes uh, Kipps Bay, uh, Stuyvesant Town, which has a great history, and Gramercy Park, um, sort of around that area for those who are familiar. The reason I decided to run is uh, just, just like a little over a week ago, uh, the New York State <laughs> maps were finalized after many, many iterations, and a new district popped up in my neighborhood. And my great senator, Senator Janaris, who's the deputy leader, uh, has his his district was split, and he took the other side, and so the side opened up. And I immediately got phone calls that morning from local community leaders who I've worked with on the ground, who I fought the IDC, the Independent Democratic Conference with, who I fought the MTA when they shut down the MTA subway and put so many small businesses out of commission. We fought Amazon here. They reached out and said, you know, we really need to take on the centrist and have somebody strong who has name ID, who has local support, who's been doing this for a while, who knows how to run a viable campaign in three months. And now I have over 40 people in our little committee of local supporters who are actively campaigning to make sure that this district stays progressive because there's a real chance that a real estate backed, very well known name could win this district. And it is a progressive district. I mean, people don't know this is the most progressive Senate district in the state, possibly even the country. So, but it's also a very community driven district. People are very involved in their community boards, they're very involved in the land trust, they're very involved in fighting off innovative queens. There are clubs, there are organizations, there are 30th Avenue business associations and Broadway business associations that are involved, moms. Uh, you know, this is like you know old school New York uh, in a in a Senate district, and folks really want to make sure that we are able to keep our rents low. We stop this speculative market. Um, Long Island City is the fastest growing city in America. It's a bunch of expensive glass towers that no one lives in uh, that are affecting the livelihoods of the largest public housing in the country at Queensbridge Housing. Uh, it is it is really the tale of two cities, as cliche as that's become. It truly is. You can see it outside, right in front of your faces. Um, it, it's 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 yeah. a, it's the epitome of how real estate's taking control of the city. So, Nomi, there's a couple of states where. Um, at the state level, very interesting things are happening between progressives and the, and the establishment wing of the Democratic Party. Oregon's yeah. one of those states where the progressive takeover made a big difference, and Jamie McLeod Skinner yeah. wound up winning the congressional seat at the federal level because of the state takeover. Um, and so in New York, you have one of those as well. So for people unfamiliar with 
the fake Democrats that Andrew Cuomo used to control and how they were defeated. Can you tell us about that so people can catch up on why the state level in New York is so important? Well, I have to give credit to you. Uh, if I can, Jenk, because you are actually a very big part of this. Uh, TYT was a big part of it. When no one was covering the Independent Democratic Conference in, you know, soon after, I mean, they've been around for over a decade. There were eight Democrats in the Senate who were caucusing with Republicans, even though they were representing overly Democratic districts. And I know you remember, Jenk, but uh, late 2016, early 2017, we were like, hey, this is a big deal. People are paying attention to what's happening locally. We want to raise awareness. And you know, we sent out, you sent me out to report on this, others to go out and report on this. You did it on the main show. And as a result, so many activists in New York became really angered and showed up at the protests and pressured and exposed a lot of these fake Democrats. So much so that the very strong candidates that were running against them, those who had been part of their communities, who had organized, were able to defeat the IDC. And it was incredible and it changed everything in the legislature. Now we have a truly democratic legislature, Senate in particular, and the Senate could potentially, you know, it could stay progressive. It's definitely gonna stay democratic, but it doesn't mean it's going to stay progressive. Our district is extremely progressive and it could be a little bit more conservative. Um, and it's it's why I think a lot of folks have, have said, you know, we need to make sure our community is preserved. We have someone from the community who understands the issues, who knows what it's like to fight at the state level, who knows what it's like to run for office, who's tested, experienced, understands the issues, knows the, the deep seated needs of this community and the state. And also the implications, as you said, on the nation, you can't pass a lot right now. Congress is frozen. They're they're completely, you know, unfortunately because of the the systemic issues that Congress and the Senate face, they're not able to get a lot of things done. In California, they can. In New York, we have a really progressive Senate that we need to keep progressive because we just started to do things like codify Roe v. Wade. We just this session, just a couple of days ago, we were able to expand some of our of our already pretty strict gun regulations, but there's a lot more to do. We have to pass the New York Health Act, we're only a few votes away. And beyond that, we need to, we need to expand much more access to make sure that our healthcare system is racially and genderly just. I mean, it's, 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 it's still weak in terms of research, in terms of accountability of doctors, making sure that they give the same proper access to people in communities that may not necessarily have access to the most wealthy doctors or, or the best doctors in the country. Um, so uh, Nomiki was a huge part of covering the IDC and, and the IDC was uh, the original Joe Manchin and Chris Cinema, but at the state level in New York. <laughs> exactly. And so just Trojan horse within the Democratic Party, to allow corporate donors to do whatever they wanted. And they were decimated by progressives in New York, which is wonderful. Just when you gave me credit for it, I was taken aback because no one ever gives me credit for anything. So I was like kind of surprised on it. I remember pitching you and you were like, go for it. And no one, I mean, I say this, I'm not trying to you know make you feel great, but I know that the we were pitching on the side media in the centrist media and they weren't having it. They picked up on it later. But it really started with you guys. And 
I, that makes a huge difference. I mean, our entire livelihoods are shifted because the IDC was defeated. And a big part of that was exposing it and, and letting activists know that there was this issue. So yeah. I do thank you that for that as a New Yorker, not just a former TYT employee. <laughs> no, I appreciate that, but but it, it's absolutely true that it was Nomi's idea in the first place to focus on that. And that's why it matters to have someone who's been in the fight for a long time, has seen these things develop and has helped to to put a spotlight on the bad guys, help defeat them, etc. So Nomi, uh, let me go back to uh, what's going on in New York. Because in California, uh, we have a super majority of Democrats, but we still can't pass things like uh, single payer health care and so many other things that uh, California is, the voters themselves are massively progressive according to the polling. But we can't get uh, most of the things that we want passed because again, as always, the corporate donors. So um, in New York, for example, you mentioned the New York Health Act. Tell us a little bit more about that. What, what would that do and why is that important to pass? And, and I know you need more progressives, not just more Democrats to pass it. Well, luckily our leadership, and I think this is the difference between our leadership in New York than, than California. Our leadership is actually very progressive in the Senate. We have uh, Senator Andre Stewart Cousins, who's been a great leader. My former senator, he's now in a different district and now I'm in a you know open district. Senator Janaris uh, has been a very strong leader. We have Gustavo Rivera, who is the carrier of the New York Health Act in the Senate and Dick Godfrey, assembly member, who has been an advocate for this for decades. We are now at a point where we could pass that if we have the political will. But beyond that, I mean, let's not forget, and where I live in particular in Queens, in Northwest Queens, we were ravaged by COVID. I mean. Outside of my apartment, just a couple blocks away, you had a hospital in which there were there were body bags being placed in in trucks outside the hospital during COVID, and we are pretending like this number one doesn't still exist. Seventy almost seventy thousand New Yorkers have died of COVID. We are pretending as if the pandemic is over and no pandemic relief is needed. We we just hit a COVID another COVID surge here. Maybe people who have been vaccinated and boosted are not dying, but they still have to leave work. I, I know at least five or six friends right now, right now, who are home with their kids, not able to work, who still have to worry about paying their rent. Some people who still haven't been able to pay off their rent from, from the first shutdown and won't have pandemic relief for that rent. In the meantime, we have a mayor who's talking about raising rent stabilized apartment rent. I live in a rent stabilized apartment. I can barely afford to live here right now. And they're gonna talk about raising the rents. At this time, when income inequality before COVID was the worst it's ever been. So we have a set of issues that, you know, there's been a backlog of issues that have not been addressed. And now that we have a democratic legislature, we really have to speed up that backlog, which they've been doing, especially now that Andrew Cuomo is not the governor. But we have yet to address the real systemic issues that led to this crisis with COVID, the economic barriers, the economic problems, the 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 housing issues that we already faced as a city that were exacerbated with this pandemic, and now are going to be much much worse. And real estate and other big industries are just coming in and saying, this is an opportunity, disaster capitalism. We're gonna take advantage of those who can't afford to live in their apartments anymore. We're gonna push them out, renovate those apartments, build high rises and create speculative markets. It's not, it's not healthy, it's not safe, it's not good for New Yorkers, it's not good for anywhere in this country. And you know, to make it global, 
New York is also a place where a lot of oligarchs are placing their money. So the fact that this pandemic and our lack of response to a health crisis, which has hurt so many New Yorkers, health-wise, livelihood-wise, economically, housing, it is being taken advantage of by people who want to hide their money. We really, as a legislature, need to crack down on this. And so um, we may not have a California issue, but we have a backlog and we need to make sure that we have aggressive, independent progressives who are not beholden to special interests. This is ultimately it. We have a progressive legislature, so there are a lot of folks who are trying to chime in and make sure their agendas are pushed. Uh, that's not the case with me, as you know. That's not the case with with some of my allies, like Senator Rivera, who's in the Bronx right now, fighting off the Bronx machine, and others who who've, who've been doing this for a long time. We have an opportunity, not just for New Yorkers, but for the rest of the country, to make sure that we pass some legislation that will really uh, solve these these real disparaging issues that um, have been exacerbated by the pandemic. All right. The website's nomikifornewyork.com, nomikifornny.com, candidate for New York's 59th Senate District. And we just explained to you why that's so important, not just for New York, but for the whole country. Nomi, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for running again. Thank you, Cenk. August 23rd, guys, that's the date of the election. Come volunteer if you can, it's a huge deal. It's a three month long campaign. and. Very important, communities matter. The community really wants to make sure that they have somebody from the district who understands the issues because it is, like we said, the largest public housing in the country is in this community. They need someone who understands what's happening so that these big developers in Long Island City aren't completely taking advantage of the income inequality, especially post COVID. So I thank you, Jake. I thank everybody else, TYT family, TYT Army. All right, thanks, Naomi. All right, now let's talk to Corbin Trent. He is the former communications director for AOC and for Just Democrats. He's also the founder of No Excuses Pack, co-host of Building the Dream podcast. Corbin, welcome, brother. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you? Good, good. Um, so, Corbin, uh, let's talk about the future and the past. Uh, I'm going to ask you about the most important uh, progressive races left in the primary season. Uh, but first, let's start with what have been the biggest wins so far? I mean, I think the biggest one so far in terms of garnering attention would probably be uh, Fetterman in the PA Senate race. I think Summer Lee, also in PA for a House seat there, was a huge win. Um, there's several in Texas that uh, are kind of, you know, I think Greg Cassar is going to be a, you know, he's going to be the next congressman from Texas 35. Um, I think that's a big win. You know, they're, they're starting to build up. They're starting to really, I think, gain some momentum. The squad or whatever you want to call it is definitely growing. That kind of that ideology uh, seems to be winning some of these primaries. Obviously, we're not winning them all. You know, Senator Nina Turner uh, lost her race there. A bunch of folks, you know, we saw APAC pour money into North Carolina, all across the country. Um, but then I think, you know, there's a couple like uh, Jamie McLeod Skinner in Oregon beat a, you know, a long-term incumbent, kind of AOC fashion, running on progressive ideas and sort of Medicare for all stuff like that. So I mean, there's there's quite a bit of wins happening. Um, and you know, I think they're just going to be getting uh, get we're going to be getting more and more as we go along. So I think even with you know, even with Fetterman's health scare and everything, you know, we saw, uh, you know, we saw that happen, you know, last week or two, I think he's gonna be able to pull out a win. Um, I think Lucas Kuntz 
that's that's the future, right? We haven't gotten yeah. to the future yet. So, but yeah, yeah, I think there's some some really exciting things happening out there. All so. right, hold on, Lucas, because that, oh. that is interesting. Um, there's actually a middle ground between the past and the future because uh, one race is still in a recount, and that's uh, Jessica Cisneros versus Cuellar, and uh, she's down by about 170 mm-hmm. votes, and then. That's so close that you have no idea which way the recount's gonna go. Um, but if uh, Cuellar does wind up pulling it out, uh, it almost ha- certainly has to be because Pelosi and Clyburn stepped in to legitimize him so that he didn't seem like he was a guy under FBI investigation that would definitely lose the general election for them, but he seemed like a credible uh, member of the Democratic Party. Uh, do you think that that probably yeah. made the biggest difference Even in, in this world? Race? I mean, I think that, you know, that's one of the things I've been kind of surprised about this cycle is seeing how close some of these races are. I think there was a Texas 23 race that uh, looks like it's going to go towards a progressive with like 23 votes. You know, some really mentioned in Pennsylvania, obviously a very narrow margin, less than 500, I think, is going to be the final count. You know, Jessica's down by less than 200. Yeah, seeing these things so close means that every single you know, phone call was made, every door that was knocked, every ad that was run, every bit of earned media, and yes, every bit of Pelosi and Clyburn and all these other schmucks going out there and legitimizing people that, you know, are basically not Democrats. I mean, even in this sort of convoluted, weird scenario where Democrats are right now, where there is no real ideology that sort of defines a Democrat, what is a Democrat, who knows? Um, I still think Quayar ought not be well, you know, the person you're backing in this sort of way. But there they are, you know, Nancy's gonna back her uh, back her incumbents, she says. So we'll see if that's the case with uh, some of these other incumbents that are getting primaried. She of course did not back uh, She of course did not back Ed Markey, who was an incumbent in the Senate, uh, because mm-hmm. he, he was progressive and for the Green New uh, Deal. Uh, and so she's a hypocrite. And by the way, if Cuellar wins the recount and he uh, loses the general election, that will be 100% Nancy Pelosi's fault and Jim Clyburn's fault, and not a single person in the mainstream media will make note of that. Not one, I guarantee it ahead of time. No. You could email this clip yeah, whatever, to every people taking bets on in Washington, that, let's lay it down. and they still wouldn't do it. They still wouldn't mention it. No. Um, so it doesn't fit the narrative for you know that they want to tell, which is that she's this sort of master statesman and stateswoman, this master uh, architect of you know the Democratic Party, and that's the for whatever reason that's the that's the story they want to tell. So yeah, I, I know what the reason is because she uh, takes the most amount of corporate money. All right, so uh, <laughs> master legislation, she can barely put together two sentences. Anyways, uh, so uh, we're going to talk about communications in a second because that's your expertise. But uh, tell me about Lucas Kuntz and some of the more exciting races coming up. So, I mean, yeah, so Lucas Kuntz is running uh, in Missouri for Senate, right? This is a, uh, you know, this he's running in a primary. They just had this sort of uh, billionaire uh, heiress jump in the race because he's looking good. He's like he's going to win the primary. And, you know, in some of the polling, he's within six points of the, of the person that's leading the Republican primary. Um, so he's got, I mean, you know, and the funny thing is, like, all these states that we just assume can never be held by progressives or held, you know, even by Democrats, these states, you know, used to be solid blue states in some cases. And, you know, I mean, even Claire McCaskill uh, held that Senate seat for a little while until she decided to be, you know, full bore corporate. Um, you know, Tennessee, where I'm from, Al Gore's from here, West Virginia. It was a super majority Democratic uh, state house for a long time. Uh, you know, the these places 
that we've given up on as a party, uh, that you know, they were democratically held within you know the last 15, 20 years. It's not you know we're not talking about going back to you know back to the Depression era. You know, this is something that's you know less than 20 years old. And you know, I think Lucas has got this kind of interesting way about him. He's a former military man. Uh, you know, he's he's got that sort of rugged, uh, rugged man, masculine thing happening. But also, he's you know, he's a solid blue Democrat in all ways you'd think. You know, he's pro-choice. Um, and but then he's got a way of talking about the economics that have sort of devastated, you know, the Rust Belt, devastated Missouri, and how we've sort of sold the farm off over the past 30, 40 years, and let uh, you know, let businesses sort of globalize. Uh, we've let this uh, supply chain get away from us, and sort of the impacts that that's having on communities there in Missouri and across the country. And I think that that's you know. Maybe maybe the way to start talking about this, but then in, in more than that, he's talking about how energy independence through you know through renewables, through building stuff in America again is the is the path to it. Similar, I think, vein to what Tim Ryan's attempting to do, except I think he's got a little bit more uh, je ne sais quoi or whatever that quality is that lets people be kind of appealing than, in my opinion, Tim Ryan does. But uh, hopefully, yeah. Tim will win in Ohio too. So, and plus. Uh, Lucas Kuntz is more of a populist than a progressive. Tim Ryan no is, is, you know, a corporate Democrat with the veneer of seems kind of full of it sometimes. Yeah, rhetoric of middle class without really backing it up. Um, so um, obviously, Tim Ryan would be infinitely better than J.D. Vance. I don't want anybody to get it mistaken. Uh, he's just not overly progressive. Um, so I think he'd even be a little bit better than a. Uh, you know, than a handful of these folks, even like a uh, uh, than a lot of these Democrats that have been running. But obviously, you know, we I think what we're looking at right now, unfortunately, is a map that's sort of stacked against us. And it looks like the House may you know end up in Republican hands. We've got a handful of I know that's why I think that this is a cycle that even if we lose the House, it's still a place where progressives can build power. I mean, you got Keena Collins running the Illinois Seven against Bobby Rush. I think that could be one of those sort of Sleeper uh, races that people aren't paying attention to. Um, Amy Valella obviously is coming up in Nevada, and then there's you know a bunch of really interesting folks running in California, and you know that's obviously this what top two primary, right? So if folks get they they advance to the top two, then they're going to the general. You got uh, David Kim in 34, I think California 34, um, running against Jimmy Gomez. Now Jimmy Gomez isn't the sort of Representative that you think, oh, this is a guy we got to go after. Um, he's basically progressive as far as the way he votes, but he's not out there really at trying to build anything. And I think Dave Kim this is his, I think second, maybe third run. He came within four or five points last time uh, in the general uh, of beating of unseating Jimmy, and then you've seen really ramping up of attack ads and mailers that are going after. I think uh, my guess is their campaign sees something. See some possibilities in November. So I think that's an interesting race too. Okay, so Corbin, um, you know, being former communications director for AOC and just Democrats, uh, let me ask you about communications. So, is there one thing that you would counsel uh, progressive candidates to do in their communications that you don't necessarily see that often? Yeah, I was talking with uh, one of the Senate campaigns today, and one of the things that I was identifying as at least what I think is part of the problem is that people don't really see a voters. 
don't see a path to any of the stuff that they're selling becoming true. Right, so the the message is really good in a lot of cases. Even Tim Ryan's message of you know competing with China or rebuilding our infrastructure, rebuilding our uh, you know re- reshoring our uh, supply chain, you know Lucas Kuntz. There's a, there's a lot of folks that are doing this sort of more rebuild America's economic engine kind of message, right? But I think one of the disconnects is the reality. You know, right now Democrats have a trifecta basically, and nothing's happening, right? So there's this I think disbelief that the Democrats can do anything, even if they have power. And I think also you're coming up against this um, disbelief that the federal government can be effective. We've just gone through the pandemic where we've largely been you know, incapable of dealing with that, supply chain, blah, 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 healthcare, all the problems that we're having. And I think there's so, one of the things that I've been trying to get folks to do is rekindle people's imagination that the government is something that we can control a little bit, right? That we can have some input on, and that can uh, direct us in a, in a in a way, right? We can actually move in a direction deliberately. Uh, you know, I think, and you talk about working uh, in the former offices. People hated when I brought up Ronald Reagan, but I think Ronald Reagan was really good at painting a picture of America, right? Painting a picture of a future. And Republicans in general are good at that. They're good at painting pictures of problems and an enemy, but they're also good at painting a picture of the, that their base wants to see of a future, right? Now, largely it's not the future we want to see, but they can see it, you know? And I think that's one of the things that we've not been able to connect with, with voters largely as a party is this sort of what do Democrats want to do, right? What is gonna be different? What, you know, like we keep talking about this damn bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed, right? Well, you know, I've had to replace a couple of rims on my car this year because I've run over potholes. I was just looking at a viral thing that came through out of Memphis where a guy's standing in a pothole uh, up to his waist, right? I mean, so they say, oh, we just spent 60 billion, 80 billion, however many billion it was. And I don't think people feel that at all in their lives, right? So that's the other thing we've got to do is either, I mean, you know, wouldn't it be great if the person at the top of the ticket, Joe Biden, instead of going around the country talking about how great Republicans are, was actually out there selling an alternative vision and trying to impact people's lives in a tangible way. But short of that, I think it's just about, you know, my theory on it is create something, a message, a vision that people can see, right? And that's one of the things I thought was so powerful about Donald Trump. Again, uh, to go back to a Republican example is the simplicity of a wall, the simplicity of, you know, immigrants taking jobs, all these things were easy to imagine, right? I mean, like, I remember standing in line at the grocery store, listening to people complain about somebody using food stamps. And that's like, the reason people don't like food stamps is because you can picture it, right? You can picture this person buying a lobster tail, you know, or whatever this fantasy is that you have of what people are doing with food stamps instead of feeding their family. Um, you know, and it's so it's easy to imagine, and we've yet to be able to paint that picture. I think uh, in an effective way. Yeah. So. Um, here's one way to go: uh, say, "Hey, we're against corporate rule." You know, the big businesses that are crushing you uh, and taking away, you know, your wages and your health care, etc. We're actually going to be protectors of the people, um, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, wish us luck. And yeah, and if Joe Manson is going to go out there and cry because uh, we mentioned his name in a press, I mean, this recent thing I'm reading now is that, that I think it was Jeff Stein of Washington Post is saying that uh, sort of recounting how the, the Build Back Better thing. Uh, we lost him there for a sec. Okay.
Uh, well, good news is we talked about Jeff Stein and what an awful article that was earlier today. So uh, we certainly agree on that. All right, so it's okay. We were out of time anyway. Um, Corbin Trent. These people that. Yeah, Corbin, yeah. we lost you there. Uh, say the point about Manchin. I don't know. It's okay. Say the point about Manchin. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So yeah, I, was, I was just reading an article the other day. I think Jeff Stein wrote it in the Washington Post. Uh, about sort of why the Build Back Better negotiations failed, something that could have tangibly impact people's lives. And the real culprit seems to be that Joe Manchin got his feelings hurt. The, the White House puts out this press statement saying something about uh, Joe Manchin and then you know uh, why things had been slowing down with getting Build Back Better out. And he flipped his lid. He went. He got so angry that he walked away from the table, declared that he wouldn't vote for it. This is something he was going to put, you know, charging stations all across the country, put in money for uh, for factories that are building uh, uh, rare earth mining, minerals, all sorts of things that was going to work to help build back an economy in this country that was functional uh, in a substantial and tangible way. And Joe Manchin decides that his feelings are way more important than the American people. And I think. If the Democratic Party could, you know, could regain the courage that maybe it had with FDR, I don't even know when the last time we had it was, to really call out the folks in this in, in this party that are really holding up the holding up the line, I think that would give people a little bit of faith too. You know, there's there's things that we can do to let people know whose team we're on. Like, you know, you were alluding earlier that, you know, talking about Speaker Pelosi, Nancy's, you know, we know she's not on our team. She's not she's not on my team, she's on your team. Right, she's on the oligarchs team. She's on corporate, you know, big corporations team, and she's on her own team. Right, and I think people feel that they sense that. And the Democratic Party has gotten too far afield in whose whose team they're on. They, they've absolutely sided with the corporations, with the bankers, uh, and, and with everybody else other than the working families across the country. And I think they got to change that. And progressives have to be clear that they're not on that team. The you should, progressive should yes. never ever be confused for Nancy Pelosi, because that will be the death of progressivism if that happens. We have to distance ourselves from the toxic corporate Democrats as quickly as possible. All right, we got to go. Uh, yeah. Corbin Trent, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks so much.